0: We're going to talk about when you should quit working on your startup idea and when you most definitely should not do that. This question is the pebble in the shoe for every entrepreneur. From the second you start working on anything interesting, you'll ask yourself at least once a week if it's something you should continue to do, if it's the type of idea anyone could be successful with, if it's the type of idea you could be successful with. The question isn't going anywhere. We've had hundreds of founders go through Tacklebox and they've built businesses collectively worth over a billion dollars. And I'm pretty sure every last one of them has questioned themselves repeatedly about this. So we've got to figure out how to handle it because you are going to question yourself about it too. And if you don't have a system for it, it'll consume you. The doubt will pull you away from opportunity-based thinking. You're going to think smaller. You're going to take fewer risks and you'll constantly jump at shiny objects. The founders who are insecure about their idea are the ones currently emailing me asking if they should add ChatGPT to their restaurant food sourcing marketplace. The reason the question is always in the back of entrepreneurs' minds is that it is really important. Tons of founders quit on things right before they could have been successful. Others waste years of their lives pursuing something that never had a chance. There is a Seth Godin quote that I love. He says, extraordinary benefits accrue to the tiny minority of people who are able to push just a tiny bit longer than most. But in the same book where he has that quote, the dip, he encourages lots of people to quit the stuff that isn't working fast. Both pieces of advice are great. It's a tough little contradictory chestnut to crack. So today we'll help you build a system to figure out the difference between the two, to identify the idea you should stick with and the idea you should quit on. We've got two methods that make up this system, one about your customer and one about you. And in a nice little useful twist, they'll also help you evaluate and plot your course as you build. So let's get to it. Should I Quit is loaded with a 747s worth of baggage because we're all human. It's the fundamental human question, stay or go. Whether that's stay or go in the context of a significant other, or a city or a job, or your best friend's 30th birthday party when the clock strikes midnight, the question is loaded and hard. For entrepreneurs, it's especially hard for two reasons. First, the lack of context. When I take a sip of milk, even if the expiration date says it should be fine, I can tell if it's expired because I've drank a lot of milk in my day. I know the signs. And those signs are rarely misleading. If it smells sour and has chunks in it, I shouldn't just power through because the sourness might eventually lead to something sweet. It is just going to stay gross. But when you're looking at the decision of should you stick on your idea or quit, it is unlikely you've ever made this type of decision before. Maybe once, possibly twice, but definitely not 50 or hundred times, which is the type of experience you'd like before making any huge decision. And if you're looking for help from friends, it's unlikely anyone, you know, has made this decision and can help with context either. And even if you have made the decision before, or if friends have made the decision before, the feedback loop on quitting or sticking with a startup is so garbled, it's unlikely you'd know if the decision was good or bad anyway. You could have thrown out a fresh gallon of milk or kept drinking from a lumpy sour one and you wouldn't know the difference. You just don't have enough context to make a decision based on experience, which is how humans make decisions. That is bad. That's why there's a pebble in your shoe. The second reason the question is particularly hard for entrepreneurs is because of the shape of the entrepreneurship success graph. It's well known that there's no better medium for graphs than a podcast, I know, but this one's simple, so just lend me a little brain power for a visualization real quick. For most things in life, the progress graph looks the same. On the x-axis is time, and on the y-axis is progress. And the things that power the graph on a consistent upward sloping curve are effort and tactics with an emphasis on effort. Pressure plus time equals progress. If you're trying to learn piano or Spanish or lose weight or run a marathon, how to be successful really just isn't a secret. Sure, a running program with the perfect mix of sprints and longer runs and weight training and recovery might be marginally better at preparing you to run that marathon, but really the variable that matters is effort. If you put in consistent effort, if you run four times a week for six months, you'll get much better at running and you'll be able to run a marathon. In the startup world, that is just not the case. Consistent effort doesn't guarantee an up-and-to-the-right graph. It doesn't guarantee a thing. To visualize the entrepreneurship success graph, picture a staircase, long flat periods, and then a sharp upward slope for a very short period of time, then another long flat period. The startup world is a world of unlocks, of step function growth, of searching for secrets that other people don't know, positioning those secrets properly, then unlocking a bunch of value, then trying to do it again. The hard part about this is no one has any clue how long the flat period is before the first step. Here is an example. I could tell a specific story, but this script has played out so many times. I'll just tell you in broad strokes, how it usually goes. An entrepreneur will come to Tacklebox with an idea they love and a problem they're excited to solve. They'll run their first five interviews and immediately become a bit worried because the customer doesn't seem to care as much as they'd hoped they would. They then get better at asking questions through those first five interviews, and they run 10 more, widening their search a bit. This gives them more context, and they think they identify a customer that might care about the problem enough to pay to have it solved. So, they run a few more interviews that aren't overly promising, but through introductions lead to more interviews. And then, finally, after 10 or 15 or 25 or 50 interviews, they speak with someone who nearly jumps through the phone, someone with a specific, painful, urgent problem that no one is helping them solve, something that costs them money and time and aggravation, something with budget and metrics. And the entrepreneur leaps up to the first step on the graph. Their first 24 interviews were demoralizing. The 25th anchored a business, a long flat line, then a jump. The problem is, of course, this jump isn't guaranteed and you don't know if you're 10 interviews from it or one or a hundred or a thousand, who knows how long the flat part of the line is. Your effort doesn't lead to visible growth. So you question everything. This is a really hard environment to work in. And if you don't develop a system to recognize and navigate it, the doubt, the question is going to eat you alive. So, let's get into the methods to tackle it, to help you build a system to create context where you've got none, and create measurement markers for the flat part of the graph. Our system will measure systemic and solvable problems for your customer and for you. And we'll do it after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Systemic or solvable? Measuring the flat part of the curve. If you're listening to this podcast intently, that means you're trying to figure out if the thing you're working on is worth working on. If the bumps in the road you've hit are speed bumps or brick walls. So the first question to ask is, what is the holdup? What is keeping you from hitting that first step on the staircase graph? What is worrying you? The holdup can be with your customer or it can be with you. We'll start with your customer. No need to jump into the deep end of the emotional pool right off the bat. Your job as an entrepreneur is to figure out if the holdup with your customer is systemic or solvable. Systemic means it's time to bounce to an adjacent customer or problem or ditch the idea altogether. Solvable means it's time to tweak strategy, but keep the pressure on. It's worth waiting it out. The big thing we're looking for here is margin. We've talked about margin being the proxy for any successful business early on, and I think about margin pretty simply. How much would someone overpay you to solve the problem for them? If you're solving it manually and it takes you an hour, would they pay you 2000 or 5000 bucks for that hour because of the scarcity of your expertise and the value of you using that expertise for them? Does it create an enormous step up in their business, one that'd be obviously worth the money? Does it help them get their way out of a hole they've dug? The early days are you looking for that customer. Systemic problems will require fundamental changes in your customer's behavior or philosophy or management structure or budget capabilities. These are not things you can change with marketing or product tweaks. These are deal breakers. Solvable problems, on the other hand, are navigable. Maybe the customer agrees the problem is worth overpaying for, but you haven't cracked the code yet on social proof or messaging or value or sequencing or risk. Not just yet. Here is an example. We've had a lot of businesses try to sell to colleges. They've tried to sell everything from food services to ed tech software to licensing agreements for athletes. In some scenarios, schools are actually great customers. We've talked about how people make decisions based on envy, not greed, and there is no better example than colleges. If, for example, you sell software that'll help Harvard get donations from their alums quicker and cheaper, you bet your sweet ass selling that software to Yale will take you about a 10-second phone call. In other use cases, colleges are systemically flawed. A founder came through a while back with an idea to help athletic departments provide better nutrition to their athletes. Athletes are often at practice pass when the dining halls close and they're left to eat pizza or Chipotle or McDonald's. Everyone was on board, coaches, players, and donors that the startup reached out to directly to make the case to the athletic director stronger. Donors offered to even give more money just to support this nutrition program. but. The school had systemic problems. There was no wiggle room for this type of expense. Food was provided for athletes and students through existing partnerships that were ironed out based on the number of students at the school. Those relationships were complex and reached years into the future. Further, there were no metrics to tie a step up in nutrition to anyone's job. No one was getting promoted if athletes ate better and no one was getting fired if they didn't, if the startup delivered incredible nutrition to athletes, then what? Would it lead to more wins? Maybe, but there'd be no way to tell. Coaches would just take credit for the wins anyway, or the AD would for hiring that coach. If there were fewer injuries based on better nutrition, the training staff would take the credit. There was no link, so there was no story to tell. Colleges were a systemically bad customer. No amount of interviews or tweaking would get the problem of athlete nutrition solved without massive systemic changes. That is a quit scenario or at least the opportunity to dig in on something else that might be a solvable problem. There's a common question investors ask startups. Why now? Why can this business exist now when it couldn't before? The question they're really asking is what systemic changes have occurred that blocked this business in the past but opened the door for it now? For example, if a law were suddenly passed that required colleges to offer balanced meals to students until midnight each evening, the systemic problem would be lifted and there might be a window for this business. But without that systemic change, the business is stuck. On the flip side, if you're looking for startup ideas, there are worse approaches than to ride recent systemic changes in an industry. There are VCs popping up all over the place dedicated to funding startups, taking advantage of all the government programs that are pushing alternative energy initiatives. Systemic blockers have been removed, so there's opportunity. A solvable problem, on the other hand, is a story-based problem. One where you need to tap into the right initial customer or the right emotion or job to be done to capture that margin. Often the problems are solved by deeper understanding of customer and customer segmentation. There are six key places where systemic problems can arise. First, in the velocity of your interactions or you finding customers. If you can't get in touch with a customer segment and message to them directly, it's unlikely you're ever going to be able to sell to them. If you aren't getting faster at getting customers to speak with you or building systems that do it, there's definitely an issue and it could be systemic. Second, conveying value. If this step up in value isn't obvious, if you solving the problem won't create an enormous amount of margin, you won't ever be able to anchor a functioning business to that customer. If the customer doesn't care, you're not going to convince them to. Third, metrics expressing that value. If there is no way to track your success, and if the metrics being tracked aren't tied directly to someone's job, they will never be motivated enough to get through a sales cycle. Fourth. Fourth. Budget. If there's no swap, meaning if the customer isn't already paying to solve this problem in another way, and if you can't swap payment from that thing to you, it's just rare that customers are going to be able to find new money to pay you. We're all goldfish living to the size of our bowl. No one just has budget lying around. Fifth, risk. What's the risk the customer sees with your approach or with the problem, and can you tell a story that alleviates it? What is the biggest thing holding them back and can you make them comfortable with it? And sixth envy, if by selling to this customer, you won't immediately get another 10 customers due to the envy of someone else seeing your first customer solve the problem and be successful. Acquisition is going to be expensive for you. It's going to be slow. This could be systemic. This list is how you measure the flat part of the curve. You can go back through these items weekly or monthly and see if the problems you're facing are systemic or solvable. What is your holdup? This part might get a little uncomfy, so let's start with something a bit lighter. Let me tell you why I love Amish people. For the record, I don't actually know any Amish people, but I tend to like just about everyone I meet, so I'm sure I'd like them if I met them too. But the reason I love them for the purposes of this podcast is their perspective on new technology. There's a myth that Amish people reject new technology, but that just isn't true. They've got cell phones and hydraulic saws and cordless drills and refrigerators. What is true about their relationship to technology is that it's a relationship, meaning there's thought and deliberation before adopting new tech. It isn't just assumed that anything new is good. New technology is viewed through the lens of what's best for the community and their goals. And these goals are rigid. They've been around for generations. The community is important. Their family values and relationships are important. And if new technology compromises those, it isn't adopted. If it helps with those, it is. The Amish people made one decision. These are our core values, which makes the rest of their decisions easier, or at least gives them solid framing to make those tough decisions. You need the same thing for your startup, but more importantly, you need the same thing with your startup as it relates to your life. You need some core values that you'll measure everything else against. This is hard, so I've always found it's easier to define what your core values aren't, what type of life you definitely don't want to live. As soon as you frame things that way, the things you love bubble to the surface. For me, one example of a value is how I want to spend at least a good chunk of my working days. I want to tell stories. When I sit down to write this podcast each week, I get nervous and anxious and scared that I'll blow the whole thing and no one will like it or me and it'll all fall apart and our listeners will all go to zero. I write the outline, and it sucks, and I hate it, and I want to quit the pod and go work on a sheep farm in New Zealand. Then there's a thread I like, and I pull on it, and it becomes a podcast I like, and I press schedule, and I'm proud. Is that a weird dynamic? Sure. Is it healthy? Almost certainly not. But I love it. I can't live without it. Any business I'm ever a part of needs that. Maybe not the specific writing a podcast part, but that creative outlet part. And if while testing out an idea that isn't going to be there, I drop it like the Amish people drop PS5 because it pulls away from their community values. So the first thing you want to define is how you definitely do not want to spend your days. Then you want to find the opposite of that. If that isn't and has no chance of being a part of your business, what are you doing? That is a systemic problem. Next is customer as they relate to you. Whatever startup you build will require a ton of sacrifice. There are things humans happily make sacrifices for and things they will not sacrifice for. I have found the biggest sacrifice drag has been customer. If you're helping a customer you love when you really want to help succeed, the sacrifices that pull you from friends and family and other opportunities don't hurt as much. If, on the other hand, you're pursuing an idea you think you're being opportunistic about or capitalizing on a market inefficiency or thinking it might just help you get rich, you are going to struggle. You'll need to be endlessly fascinated by your customer to get to the level of nuance needed to build something differentiated. The good news is you likely won't start with this level of fascination. Striking makes the iron hot, not the other way around. Work with the customer and you'll see if your interest grows, but if it doesn't, this could be systemic. When I was building Find Your Lobster, a dating app anchored by Facebook back in 2011, I loved a lot of the parts of the business, but I didn't care much about the customer. I didn't not care, but when it was 2 a.m. on a Saturday night and I was working for my 50th day out of the last 53, including weekends, and I was watching my 20s slip away, it was hard to convince myself that what I was doing was worth the sacrifice. What was this all for? I was going to help people date, which is. Great, sure, but this customer would be fine if I didn't exist. People have been dating for a really long time without find your lobster. I just couldn't find that endless motivation for the customer who would have been fine without me, which meant I had to be motivated by other things, which tend to have expiration dates. The introspective part of the quit or persevere decision has to do with your motivators. Does the customer give you energy? Does the work? If not push to change each. If you can't, it's systemic. The final part of this is covered in the podcast, Sell the Position, which I'll link to in the show notes. But the short version is this. If everything else was on the table, would you choose actively this opportunity, this customer, this path? If there were no sunk costs, are your instincts that this is the right thing for you to be working on? If someone else was running your business, would you invest every cent of your savings into it? Because that is what you're doing. If no, listen to the earlier parts of the episode and try and figure out why. Checking on these weekly or monthly, looking back through your calendar to see if how you work and the customer you're serving aligns with your goals and values, if it gives you energy, is a critical data point for quitting or pushing through. The decision. These methods are meant to give you the two things entrepreneurs struggle to get, context for the decision and measurement in the flat part of the curve. Revisiting these metrics a couple of times a month will ensure you're working on something with a good chance of being successful and a good chance of making you happy. I forget who gave me this advice, but I've never forgotten the advice itself. Making the wrong decision rarely hurts you. Making no decision often does. Building the system to be intentional about what you're working on is the real unlock of this podcast. Do that and you'll increase the chances that the thing you're working on is the right thing for you. We don't want you chugging sour milk, hoping it's going to magically turn fresh and maybe worse. We don't want you throwing out a gallon of fresh milk right before it helped you build the business of your dreams. That milk analogy definitely fell apart there at the end of it, but you get what I mean. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, come build it with us. We've got a few openings. Apply at gettacklebox.com or email us at team at gettacklebox.com with questions. Have a great week.